is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. No warning ahead of that whipping tornado that swirled in Montebello. We'll go in-depth into why Southern California's geography makes it extremely difficult for equipment to detect potential tornadoes before they touch down. A new report finds that anti-Semitism is on the rise in the U.S. We'll look into why. Also, uh, do you like meat, Charles? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, we got some bad news for you. That's oh. coming up. I, I don't want to live my life eating carrots. Mm, well, you'll have a choice to make. You mean carrots or like <laughs> or cauliflower? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We start with tornadoes in Southern California. Alex Tardy is a warning coordination meteorologist with NOAA in San Diego. Alex, thanks for being with us again. Hey, thanks for having me on. So uh, a lot of people were asking yesterday after that, what we now know was a tornado that touched down in Montebello. Why is it that we can't get uh, in at least parts of Southern California, parts of Los Angeles, uh, tornado warnings like they get in places, you know, the mid Midwest, for example. And I know we were told yesterday that that a big part of the reason is the topography of, of L.A., all the mountains. But there's also a cost factor in where you would put the equipment. Right. So my question is, if that is if those are the reasons, perhaps with our weather patterns seemingly changing, is it time to rethink whatever the decisions were decades ago not to have the kind of equipment in the places we need them? Yeah, all that's a great question. And and it's not a unique problem to Southern California. So just want to make that clear. If it's Vermont in the mountains or if it's Oregon in the mountains, if you get a tornado or any type of unusual object, Mountains block signals. So mountains block our cell phone signals. Mountains block our microwave communication signals. Mountains block our weather radar. So we can't just have the radar on top of the mountain or remove it from the top of the mountain and bring it down to the valley, because then if it's in the valley, it's blocked from the other side of the mountain. For example, Palm Springs is really complicated. So what we need, um, and this has been discussed for decades now when the first systems were deployed in the 90s, we need um, more radars, not less or necessarily relocating them. We need them in the valleys, the corners, the coast, the mountains. And then you're talking the expense that you mentioned. So what kind of expense are we talking about? And, of course, I I imagine the uh, taxpayer pays for that. Uh, It comes out of the uh, federal budget. Yeah, that's correct. Um, I'm not privy to the dollars and cents, but the National Weather Service um, is part of the NOAA uh, National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. So that means it's federal. That means Congress approves, denies, provides the budget. Um, The other thing. You know, besides the cost, the storms are different in the Midwest than they are out here. A supercell tornado in Kansas, 40 miles from a weather radar, will show up like a sore thumb. Uh, You don't always know if it's going to weaken or strengthen, but it shows up immensely obvious as like wind shear would show up to a pilot. Out west, a lot of times the storms are marginal, weak. They fall apart when they hit a mountain. They spin back up when they go into the open valley. Just think about how challenging it is with our fires, with all the different wind directions that firefighters are posed with on an average condition. Tornadoes are no different. 
Um, so even if we had the perfect radar in the perfect location, I'm not sure if that exactly is going to show us with significant lead time what we need to know. So is it fair to say, and this is not meant as a criticism, it's just uh, I'm trying to, to make it as clear to listeners as we can. Is it fair then to say that because of all the things you just mentioned, the the the, the geography, the topography of the area, the the cost, yes, the cost too, uh, the way the storms uh, form and get distributed being different here than in other parts of the U.S., for all of those reasons, is it fair then to say that at least for the next few years, unless some new invention comes along, we're not likely here to be able to get tornado warnings? Is that fair? Well, I, I wouldn't say that we're not able to get tornado warnings. We have the ability uh, in this particular scenario, though you are correct. You know, tornadoes were expected in some part of California the past two days, but where we don't know. So literally the shower or the thunderstorm that produced that tornado showed up on radar about 30 minutes before it moved through the city. Um, so you have like maximum 30 minutes. The life cycle of that actual cumulus cloud and shower was about 30 minutes. And then you have the life cycle of the tornado, which is about you know a few minutes uh, at the most. And the system is moving 45 miles per hour. So even in a perfect world, perfect radar situation, you have very little time to pinpoint that location. I wouldn't say it's zero time, though. I think, you know, over time... You know, every year it gets a little bit better, but these are very subtle type of situations, even though the poor town, you know, in its direct path, it doesn't feel subtle. Right. It's the only one occurring anywhere in the whole entire region. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Alex Tardy, uh, Warning Coordination Meteorologist with uh, NOAA in San Diego. Still to come, a new study links meat to a common infection. And we'll tell you why lawmakers are so worried about TikTok that they grilled the CEO in Congress. Oh, I see there's a sort of subtle, maybe not so subtle, connection between meat and mm-hmm. grilling. Aha! Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, did, I, I didn't even know I was that clever. Yeah, because that guy was really baking under the lights. He was. Oh, yeah. Right now, though, a new report from the Anti-Defamation League found that there were more anti-Semitic incidents recorded in the U.S. last year than in any other year since at least 1979. With us is Emily Snyder, anti-Semitic incident specialist with the ADL Center on Extremism. Emily, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, and I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss the important findings in the ADL Annual Audit of Anti-Semitic Incidents. And because of the limitations, of course, that we have with time, I'm going to ask you to very briefly tick off the headlines of this study. Perfect. So the findings of our latest report quantify what a lot of people in the Jewish community have been feeling, that anti-Semitism seems to be popping up everywhere and often. In 2022, we saw a 36% increase in anti-Semitic incidents compared to 2021 for a total of 3,697 incidents of harassment, vandalism, and assault across the country. So we see the, we see this idea of uh, othering in this country. We call it othering. As, as hate grows, the groups separate themselves. People get lost in their own bubbles. You begin to look out and you see the other groups. You begin to see the differences. So uh, anti-Semitism uh, goes up, but also uh, uh, hatred toward and crimes against Asian Americans. Uh, uh, 
uh, Hispanics, uh, any other group that wants to be a target, we, drag performers, uh, groups become targets. Why does anti-Semitism carry with it the whiff of something even more noxious? We we at ADL often say that anti-Semitism is the canary in the coal mine. So when you start to see societal, societal uh, norms fray, especially in democratic societies, you start to see uh, targeting of, of what you're talking about, targeting of people who are different, who are other, um, in an effort to perhaps explain why the world isn't working out the way you want it to be. Um, and unfortunately, those in communities of color, religious minorities, um, LGBTQ plus individuals and communities are particularly targeted um, because of our marginalized uh, identities. But 1979 uh, was a very long time ago in many ways. Uh, so what is it that has changed? I mean, we've had economic hard times since 1979. Uh, we had a, you know, the so-called Great Recession, for example. Uh, we had uh, other, you know, uh, sort of junior pandemics. We had for a little bit of, of time, we had a bird flu, uh, not pandemic, but it was an epidemic for a while. We've had various issues since 1979. What, in your view, has materially changed in 2023 that accounts for this rather large statistical uptick? Uh, good question. I think in the last couple of years, we have seen our democratic norms fraying. Um, I, I mean, the the protests outside the Capitol in 2021 is a perfect example of that. Um, and, and protests like that have been occurring in many different state capitals across the country. And when you see threats to a fair and equal election process, that does raise lots of concerns um, and often correlates to increases in anti-Semitic incidents. Is the current rise of anti-Semitism due in part to this vilification uh, among some on the far right of George Soros? I think one one could make that assumption. Um, I personally don't don't like to adhere to the right versus left politics because in the work I see every day, I see anti-Semitic incidents, you know, coming from across the entire political spectrum. Um, and eventually, if you go far enough into any one extremist ideology, you eventually. Uh, see that those folks start to blame the Jews for for the issues that they are trying to uh, to to quote unquote address <laughs> while while embracing their extremist ideology. Um, so for me, it's less so about blaming one particular individual or one party versus trying to tackle um, this millennia old hate that really sees no no. Um, no boundaries when it comes to political ideology. All right. Thank you so much. Emily Snyder, anti-Semitic incident specialist with the ADL Center on Extremism. We, we should, uh, uh, as a kind of editorial footnote, explain to listeners who might be scratching their heads who George Soros is. Uh, and, you know, he's a rather wealthy individual. Of course, he's Jewish, which is why we brought, brought that up. Uh, a philanthropist, a noted one, and somebody who has been vilified 
by uh, a lot of people, unfortunately. And yes, uh, Rob is correct, uh, mostly on the right side of the political spectrum, uh, as being the sort of hidden hand behind all sorts of alleged plots. But but in case you're wondering, that's who that gentleman is. More on the uh, ADL report into anti-Semitism. These spikes in anti-Semitic incidents uh, seem to come in waves, if you look at it historically. Gunther Yeakley is with the Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism at Indiana University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So explain these waves and what are behind these waves. Can we, could we predict them? Well, we've seen such waves in Europe for um, the last two decades. And now apparently this is also coming to the U.S. where we have increasingly Jewish communities fearing for their security. And this is a development that we've seen in recent years. I would say in the last, at least the last four years five years in the U.S. as well. Let me ask you a uh, a really basic question, because I think that there might be, especially young people, uh, a lot of young people listening, who might be asking the question, why anti-Semitism to begin with? Where did this start? I mean, Jews are a minority population in the world. Why such vehement uh, uh, and vilification of this group, where did it begin? Why? Yeah, you, yeah, you're very right. Most people don't even know any Jewish person, and they can still have hatred against them. I think it's an easy way to blame ills of our societies on one group. So you don't have to deal with the problems; you just blame it on the Jews. And Jews have often uh, been scapegoated in that way throughout history. And that comes with, has a very long historical baggage, I would say at least 2,000 years, when Jews have been seen as being somehow in line with the devil, demonized in that way. So that's, that's part of it, that we have this very long cultural background, and it's easy just to pick on Jews. You could also use other minorities, but it's often Jews that are picked on. You know, you talk about uh, for about 2000 years, and that leads us to the next question. How much of this is uh, how much of this started with religion? Yeah, it's part of it. But, um, you know, in, in Christianity, it was um, for early Christians. It was a debate what to do with the uh, Jews who do not want to convert. Do they have uh, a place in the world? And in the there were polemics early on. And I think these polemics have gotten out of hand in, in some ways that uh, Jews were seen as being aligned with the devil and that they would not have right to exist anymore because it was said the truth is Christianity and the covenant uh, between God and the Jews is not valid anymore and they should not exist. So it really focused on the existence of Jews. And we see that still today in new forms, um, often anti-Semites, they are bothered by the sheer existence of Jews. And that's why it gets um, then quickly violent if, um, if there are no, if there are no um, checks um, and uh, if the anti-Semites get free uh, and express themselves freely. 
Gunther, in our last segment, we were talking about the rise in anti-Semitism attacks in the U.S. at its height since 1979, I believe, was the base year that, mm-hmm. that our guest was talking about. Do you also see signs, other than just those numbers, that are we, at least in the U.S., living now through a particularly dangerous time for Jews? Yes, I mean, this is, has often been throughout history when in society you see that uh, there's a polarization. So when it becomes dangerous is when it becomes politically loaded. So if people on the right blame Jews for what they see as the most important problem, maybe immigration, um, uncontrolled immigration or something, then they have this conspiracy theories that Jews are to blame for that. And others, rather from the left, that might see um, racism as the most important problem, then they blame Jews for being racist, or the Israel, the state of Israel to be racist, and they focus on that. So that gets really loaded politically, and then that's when it becomes really dangerous. All right, thank you so much. That's uh, Gunther Yekeli with the uh, Institute for the Study of Contemporary Anti-Semitism at Indiana University. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you can imagine, and you probably had it before, but uh, food poisoning, uh, I'm going to go on the record and say not fun. Not something you want to do. Uh, Getting a urinary tract infection is also quite unpleasant, to put it mildly. I don't mean to be judgmental. I'm just saying they're not fun. No, these are not things you would like to do for the weekend. No. A new study now links E. coli strains from meat to UTIs. So with us to explain uh, is study senior author Lance Price with George Washington University's Antibiotic Resistance Action Center. Lance, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, why, now, is my suspicion right that uh, the connection to meat and UTIs, does that have anything to do with the fact that we feed cattle in this country so many antibiotics? Well, that's how you can get an antibiotic-resistant urinary tract infection, for sure. Um, but, you know, the, the question is, is how are we getting these infections, I think, is, is really important. And, and, and it's the same way you get the, you know, the foodborne infections that you were talking about before, right? So diarrhea is what we're used to thinking about um, E. coli being associated with. But it's the same thing where you're ingesting undercooked products or something that you've cross-contaminated in the kitchen, right? You're not not handling the product properly. You ingest those bacteria. But now instead of causing a disease in your gut, now that E. coli is getting from your gut into your urinary tract and causing an infection there. Yeah, that's kind of odd. I'm no expert on human plumbing by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) And I understand that eating some bad meat can give you food poisoning and uh, kind of make you nauseous and and have your other uh, problems. Uh, But how does it become a urinary tract infection? Well, so, yeah, women are at the greatest risk for these. And, and, you know, the anatomy or the plumbing, as as you'd say it, is such that it's a short trip from I'm going to be graphic here from the anus to the urethra, right? So it's a short trip. And and unfortunately, if you get these bacteria, these special kind of E. coli that can cause urinary tract infections in your stomach, then they can make that short trip and then cause an infection. And the problem is that a bladder is the 
is really the gateway to the blood too, right? So you can get, you can go from a bladder infection to a kidney infection and then really dangerous bloodstream infections. And what we're finding is that these foodborne strains can cause even those most serious infections. Now, are we talking about meat that people eat from fast food places, for example, that's been prepared and then they eat it and perhaps they weren't prepared properly or they were contaminated in the preparation? Are we talking about meat that people are buying at the supermarket and prepare at home? Both? What we studied was the the kind that people buy and bring home, right? So we were studying raw meat from the grocery store. So everything we studied was retail, you know, bought at retail. So what's changed? What's what's changed? Well, I think this has probably happened all along, but no one had ever really made that connection between what you know, all this E. coli we're seeing in the food supply, and then the fact that E. coli causes most urinary tract infections. No one really did a systematic study to connect these two. All right. So I don't want to get sick, uh, but I still like eating meat. Uh, What should I do? Is this just a question of being careful around raw meat and making sure that you cook things thoroughly? Yeah. On an individual basis, that's your best, that's your best bet, right? So if you're going to bring these products into your house, then you've got to be aware of your hands, of your surfaces, your cutting boards, your knives, you've got to wash your hands a lot, right? And so the minute you open up that package of chicken, you can just assume that that liquid has bacteria in there and and potentially some of these E. coli. And so you want to get that chicken into the pan right away and then get that package of that packaging into the trash can without contaminating the trash can, without contaminating the cabinet door, without contaminating the sink. Yeah. You know, so you've got to be really careful. What do you do, though? I know you you uh, studied the meat that you bring home, but restaurants get meat from pretty much the same sources, right? So what do you do if you're in a steakhouse where, you know, there's often great resistance if you want to order your steak more on the well-done side? Usually they say, oh, no, the chef prefers that the steak be, you know, eaten uh, practically raw or at least, you know, rare. Is that a bad choice? You know, I don't think that solid cuts of beef are really, a, um, you know, a huge risk factor. So it's the surfaces. And, and the big problem is ground beef, right, when it's chopped up. But for this, for the urinary tract infections, what we're seeing is that uh, poultry products seem to be the biggest risk factors there. And no one's asking for rare rare chicken, right? So I think that the big problem is that that contamination in the kitchen, whether that be in a restaurant or at a, at a home. But restaurants are trained usually in, in handling these products well. All right. Thank you so much. That is uh, Lance Price with George Washington University. Lawmakers in Congress grilling TikTok CEO today over privacy concerns with the social media app. And he told the lawmakers that uh, some employees of TikTok's parent company may still have access to some U.S. data from the app, but that will not be the case soon. Now, Don Haran is a CEO of Netra AI. And uh, Don, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I understand that when you were the former executive deputy chief information officer of New York, you banned TikTok on all state-issued phones. Yeah, that's 100% correct. And and, uh, and what was what was your sorry. specific reasoning? Yeah, so my specific reasoning behind that was mainly where their data resided. It, it did reside in China, was not located over here, which was extremely concerning to me. However, uh, the fact that it was owned by a, a Chinese uh, company with ties to the Chinese Communist Party uh, was also a significant concern of mine as well. Let me ask you the the contrarian uh, question, uh, because I've heard people who are 
uh, sort of a little bit suspicious or uh, concerned that perhaps we're going too hard after TikTok. Uh, And they point out that don't all the social uh, media sites, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, don't they all collect enormous amount? I mean, that's their business model, right? They collect all kinds of data on the on the people who are using them, including kids. And while it may not go to the Chinese government, it does go to who knows uh, how many corporations and, and companies up to who knows what in order to have their own businesses thrive. So what is the real big difference? So the the real big difference between it going to a company owned by uh, a U.S. entity and going to a Chinese one, I think, is a is a huge difference. You, you know, we are in a constant battle with China, uh, and you know they are coming to state. But it comes down to a simple fact, and that simple fact is whoever has the data is going to win. So if if we potentially go to battle our war with China or uh, as we continue along here and they continue to push their, their communist agenda, uh, they're going to utilize that d- data against us. But you, you bring up uh, one of my, I guess, my, my biggest points that I'd like to make here, and that is on data overall. You're absolutely correct. All these companies have all of these, this, these troves of our data and our information. They target us the same way. Uh, you know, we all go out there and, and talk with our friends. And then next thing you know, you see an ad on your phone pop up about something you were talking to. Uh, so many companies do that. And the point I would like to highlight is that we definitely need a lot of policy inside this this area. Uh, you know, Section 230 doesn't doesn't cover this at, at all. Uh, and with things like ChatGPT, AI and machine learning out there, we need policy action now. We're behind. Uh, you spoke of... Uh... Uh, the Chinese Communist Party and and this company that owns it has has deep ties to the Chinese Communist Party. But but isn't that true of any business that operates from China? Because that's the way their uh, economic system is put together. I mean, uh, the Chinese government has a lot to do with any company that operates in China. Is that uh, correct? Yeah, that that is correct. So does and do you do you think that ByteDance, uh, the company that uh, owns TikTok, do they have more ties to the Chinese Communist government than any other uh, uh, Chinese company would? I, I wouldn't say that they have more ties, but they have more users, and they're in the lives of more people. And you know, lots of us buy stuff from Amazon. That stuff comes from China. Uh, it has ties to the Chinese Communist Party as well. But the amount of users that they have, the amounts of data that they that they have. Uh, is astronomical, a lot more than these other companies, these camera companies and things like that, that you buy off Amazon are are capturing, uh, which is a, a, a point that I don't think was really, uh, really highlighted enough today. And that is that there should be some restrictions on what data they can capture and, and what they can do with that data after they capture it. TikTok, and I would say that that goes for all, all tech companies. TikTok has said for its part, that, uh, you know, the data that it collects on its video sharing app is actually now being stored by, I believe it's Oracle, uh, that it has a partnership partnership with in the United States. And then they point out that while it may have been founded, TikTok, by a Chinese company, they say, well, yeah, but now I think the figure is like 60% of it is owned by various industries around the world and another 30 percent by who knows who. Uh, Do those arguments uh, 
to you anyway really matter? It doesn't really matter to me because there's lots of other questions that I have that still are, are not answered. One of those is their hardware, the hardware that they're using inside these data centers. Uh, where does that come from? We've seen uh, the Chinese put stuff in hardware before. Uh, so that's a question that, that uh, you know, I would I would have. Uh, my other question is, OK, what, what other companies are their business partners and what are their ties to China? A question that I don't think was asked and should be asked. Because uh, there's ways to just because it's sitting in a, a, an Oracle data center doesn't mean that they don't have a third party affiliate or a, a, a business partner who has access to that data, who is tied to the Chinese okay, so uh, then, government. Then here comes the $64,000 question. Should TikTok be banned? I, I think that right now TikTok should be banned because they, they have said today that all their data is not yet in, in the United States. And that's part of their, their project, Texas. Uh, but I think there needs to be a path for them to be able to operate. And I think that's going to come with strict guidelines on data capture and what they can do with that data and, and how they target children and a, a group that's really important to me, seniors. We didn't talk about that at all. Lots of seniors are on this app and, you know, they, they are believing, believing uh, what they, what they see in here on this too. Also groups that, uh, you know, might have, uh, which was brought up today, maybe some, some sorts of disabilities. There's lots of different groups out there. And I, I don't really think that, uh, that it should be the same for, for, for everyone on how TikTok handles that data. I think that they have taken advantage of certain groups. Uh, I do think they have, have taken, uh, uh, advantage of people who who are are my minorities, and uh, I, I just not a, I'm just not a, an advocate for things like that. I think that goes against humankind and, and doesn't create a, a good culture. All right, uh, thanks so much, to, uh, Don Haran uh, uh, Haran, the former executive deputy chief information officer with uh, New York.